Today, we will talk about the Ukrainian military counteroffensive now in its 80th day. It has not produced major breakthroughs. And Ukrainians, according to U.S. government officials, may be becoming casualty averse, meaning not wanting to die in such record numbers. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Walter Smolarik. Walter is the editor of Liberation News. Walter, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Walter, a lot's going on. As I mentioned in the introduction, the much vaunted counteroffensive by the Ukrainian armed forces is in its 80th day. You can see from the media reports and the statements of U.S. government officials that what they had hoped for has not been accomplished. There are no major breakthroughs. At the same time, the U.S. media is reporting that the number of people killed or wounded in the Ukraine war in the last 18 months may be more than a half a million, more than 500,000, and that the Ukrainian war dead now have surpassed all of those who died on the U.S. side in the Vietnam War over a 10-year period. I'm not talking about the 2 million Vietnamese who died, but more than 58,000 Americans died during the Vietnam War. At that time, that provoked a huge anti-war movement in the United States. People said, what is this war for? Why are we sending our sons to kill and be killed? What's it all about? When does it ever end? And obviously, as you can see, Walter, from the media reports here in the U.S., Ukrainians don't want to keep dying. They don't want to keep sending their sons to a long war. And yet U.S. government officials and the U.S. Washington-based think tanks and the U.S. media are demanding a long war no matter what the cost for Ukrainians. Let's just talk about that. That's right. Well, the the violence, the carnage is absolutely massive in this war. And you're right. The counteroffensive is not living up to what was essentially sold to the public. And this was in large part a way to generate public support for shipping new, more advanced weapon systems, spending more and more tens of billions of dollars. But if you look at what the counteroffensive has been able to achieve so far in, like you said, the about roughly three months that it's been going on for, it's very little. It's very little. The Ukrainian military commanders were probably hoping to recreate the type of success that they experienced in counteroffensives in Kharkiv province in the north or Kherson in the south. But that has not materialized because the Russian defensives have been in much better shape than in earlier phases of the war. And there are a lot more Russian soldiers, too, fighting because the the country has gone through a mobilization, right, essentially a draft. So the fighting has been much, much, much more intense. The Russian military leadership has, you know, very established defensive doctrines. They have, you know, methods in place that they've all studied to create echelon defenses, multiple lines of defense. And the Ukrainians, by many military commentators, you know, estimation, have not even reached the first line of defense. Maybe they're sort of just getting to the first line of defense now and have kind of gotten through the preliminary layers. But it appears that there's much, much more fighting to be done if they are going to achieve the type of territorial gains that they have, you know, sort of set for themselves as a goal. That does not appear to be on the horizon right now as it stands whatsoever. What has been happening is death in massive numbers, as you pointed out, destruction to a huge extent. And the U.S. government, the U.S. Pentagon and State Department war planners, they want that death and destruction to go on until they achieve their geopolitical goals, which is to, as Lloyd Austin openly said, weaken Russia and and really to, in their wildest fantasies, affect regime change inside of Russia and the installation of a a compliant pro-Russian government. Just look at this headline or, or listen to this headline from Foreign Affairs magazine. It's titled, How Ukraine Can Win a Long War, 
the West needs a strategy for after the counteroffensive. It was published on August 30th, and it essentially compares the war in Ukraine to World War I and World War II. And they said, well, at this point in World War I or World War II, think about what dire straits the Allies were in, the Western powers were in. You know, it can still come around. They can still turn this thing around is essentially the thesis of the article and it reflects the thinking of a large part of the imperial, you know, managing leadership, they can still turn this around if the war goes on and on and on and on. Ukraine can win a long war, meaning one that can last for potentially even years where this type of grinding death and destruction goes forward. And then eventually Russia can be worn down, strategic opportunities can be found. And with, you know, a huge amount of resources invested, they can retake all of the territory that Ukraine claims as its own. That's a very dangerous recipe for escalation. I mean, the United States has already toyed around with the idea of, for instance, a no-fly zone, which would have been, you know, a, a guaranteed, nearly guaranteed entrance into World War III. The longer this war goes on for, the higher the risk of an unplanned, unexpected, maybe even accidental escalation goes forward. But they are not willing, the Western leaders, the Western capitals are not willing to consider what it would take to actually end this war now. How could we could have peace, not sometime in the next few years, but right now, sometime in the next few weeks or months? I mean, when we talk about how the war could come to an end if it's not a long war, in other words, could there be a settlement to the war? It was noteworthy what Putin said in his speech at the recent BRICS summit that took place in Johannesburg. I think you have a copy. I wanna quote for the audience just a, a little bit of what Putin said, and then I wanna talk about that. Yeah, that's right. So this is what Putin said at the BRICS summit. Let me point out that it was the attempts by some countries to preserve their global hegemony that paved the way to the deep crisis in Ukraine. It started when an anti-constitutional government coup took place in this country with the help of the Western countries. This was followed by the unleashing of a war against people who refused to accept this coup. It was a cruel war, a war of extermination, which lasted for eight years. Russia decided to side with people who are fighting for their culture, their traditions, language, and future. Stopping the war unleashed by the West and its satellites in Ukraine against the people of Donbass is the only thing that defines our actions in Ukraine. We are grateful to our BRICS colleagues who are trying to end the situation and achieve a just settlement by peaceful means. What do you think about that framing of the war, Brian, and the potential resolution? Well, let's hear again what Putin actually says at the BRICS summit. Originally, remember, before the Russian invasion which was February 2022, Putin said the goal was to demilitarize Ukraine and to denazify Ukraine. So kind of not territorial gains. It was about the character of Ukraine. And that was, of course, as the U.S. was incorporating Ukraine into a, a U.S. sphere of influence, into NATO in a de facto way, even if it didn't have formal membership, such that all of Ukraine was going to be used by the U.S. as a staging ground for the placement of advanced missiles targeting Russia that Russia couldn't defend against. And also the, the Kiev government, the Ukrainian government had ignored the Minsk agreements or violated them and was continuing to shell the people in the Donbass. These are mainly Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of Ukraine, people who historically always considered themselves to be Russian. So now you have, as you just quoted to us, Walter, here's what, again, I want to emphasize this for the audience. Here's Putin speaking at BRICS. Russia decided to side with the people who are fighting for their culture, their traditions, language, and future. Stopping the war unleashed by the West and its satellites in Ukraine against the people of Donbass is the only thing that defines our actions in Ukraine. Now, what Putin is saying is that this completely defines the struggle of the people in the Donbass. It completely defines what Russia's war is about. So presumably, if the United States and NATO came back to the negotiating table and said to Russia, okay, Donbass is now, they've had referendums, they're Russian, you're insisting now that the war is about protecting and defending them, their culture, their language, 
Okay, we recognize that the Donbass is no longer part of Ukraine, that it's really part of Russia. Crimea is part of Russia. Again, Crimea has always been a part of Russia, or at least for the last 400 years or 350 years. If the U.S. said that, it sounds to me like Russia would say yes. Russia would say yes, that that would be the basis for an armistice or for a treaty that would end the war. Because Putin has now defined the mission in a different, somewhat different way than he defined it in 2022. Originally, he said it was to protect the people in the Donbass and also to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. He now says the single goal of the Russian military operation is that, is about Donbass and Crimea. So that's the basis for a settlement. I mean, what would be so awful about that as an outcome for the war? Yeah, I mean, it's an extremely important point. I mean, and this is something that the United States has refused again and again and again to consider. We saw this not only, you know, during the war up until this point, but also in the months leading up to the war. I mean, the invasion of Ukraine, the initiation of the military operation in February 2022, only came after repeated refusals by the United States primarily and their Western allies to negotiate a new security architecture for Europe. Russia has, of course, immediate concerns in Ukraine as it relates to the status of the Russian-speaking ethnic Russian population of the country. But there's also this much broader question of NATO expansion into Eastern Europe, that's something that the United States has been, you know, completely unwilling to talk about, to have any type of, you know, political settlement over. But that appears to not even be necessary for at least the immediate cessation of hostilities. I think it truly is remarkable, Brian, that the United States wouldn't be willing to consider the territorial status of the Donbass. If you could, could you expand a little bit more on the history of what we're talking about here, both in terms of Ukraine's relationship with Russia and, and also NATO's relationship with Eastern Europe? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons we wanted to continue the conversations, Walter, that you and I have been having on this show, on the socialist program. I mean, Ukraine was part of Russia and became an independent or semi-independent republic in 1922 by a treaty that formed the basis for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That was Lenin's position on the nationalities question in the former Russian Empire being implemented. And Lenin's vision was that the Union of Soviet Socialist countries would ultimately be joined by countries all over the world, not simply the countries formerly in the Russian Empire. But Lenin's position was that Ukraine, because Ukrainians were a minority people, had their own language and culture, even though they were part of the Russian Empire and very integrated into Russia and were seen by Russians as part of Russia, that in order to forge unity between the working class of Russia, which was making the socialist revolution, and the Ukrainian revolution, which was both for Ukrainian identity but also for socialism, that the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic and the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic and then, you know, over time, another 13 republics, including Georgia and Armenia and Azerbaijan and the Baltics and Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan. These countries would constitute a union of Soviet socialist republics. And during that time period between 1922 and it becomes part of the, the federation, the union consolidates with a new constitution in 1924 in the Soviet Union. From that time all the way until the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, December 1991, Ukraine and the Russian and Russia are one. They're part of the same country. And in 1954, after Stalin died, and when Khrushchev was emerging as the principal new leader of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and Khrushchev had been for a long time the leading party member in Ukraine, it was really under his leadership that Crimea was transferred from Russian authority to Ukrainian authority. So it became part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. But it really was an administrative alteration of the status of Crimea because they were one country. 
Russia and Ukraine were one. So having Crimea, where the Russian, or at that time, the Soviet military base, the largest one, was located, it didn't really have that big of an impact. But when the Soviet Union breaks up, when the counter-revolution happens, when the Soviet Union dissolves, when Ukraine becomes independent, there was an agreement between the Ukrainian government, now independent, and the Russian government that Crimea would still be basically under the authority of Russia because that's where the largest Russian military base was. And again, they had been one country up until that moment. So you had this administrative transfer of Crimea to Ukraine. In the case of Donbass and in the case of the Russian-speaking parts of the population, there were many parts of the Soviet Union where there was integration of peoples. I mean, Russia had more than 100 ethnicities and languages. And so people had their own territories, their own common territories and their own common culture. But there was a lot of integration because of the way boundaries were formed. One of Putin's complaints when he announced the invasion of Ukraine was that the Donbass, which is a you know predominantly Russian, Russian-speaking part of that territory, was kind of sort of just put into Ukraine administratively in 1922, where it should have been part of Russia from the beginning. So that's some of the, the history of that. But, you know, the other part of this that I think is very, very important is to realize that NATO expansion took place, and this is the other part of the history, Walter, that we've spoken about, but we can't speak about it too much. I mean, NATO expansion takes place dramatically after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you had the NATO formed in 1949 with 12 countries. In 1954, the Soviet Union, then in the post-Stalin era, asked to join NATO under one condition, that, that Germany not be allowed to come into NATO. The Soviets even said they were willing at that time to withdraw from East Germany, where Soviet troops had occupied that part of Europe, in exchange for a pledge by the United States that Germany would not be brought into NATO. And of course, Germany had invaded the Soviet Union and 27 million Soviets died as a consequence. So that was a big deal. And the Americans said, no, they weren't going to allow the Soviets to join NATO. And yes, they were going to bring Germany into NATO. And that's when the Soviet Union formed the Warsaw Pact countries, which sort of mirrored NATO. You had the countries in the socialist part of Europe, the Eastern and Central Europe, who were allies of the Soviet Union, they formed like their version of NATO called the Warsaw Pact in 1955, six years after the formation of NATO, in response to the refusal by the United States not to bring Germany into NATO. And in 1991, in 1990, actually, as the Soviet Union was winding down in crisis and collapsing, the Warsaw Pact was also dissolved. And so at that time, James Baker, who was then Secretary of State for George H.W. Bush, goes and meets with his counterpart, the Soviet foreign minister, who was Edward Shevardnadze. And he says, this was in February 1990, Baker says to Shevardnadze, Look, we will give you an iron guarantee that if you allow Germany to reunite, if you allow East Germany and West Germany to reunite on the basis of the domination, really, of the capitalist U.S.-led West Germany, we guarantee you, giving you an iron guarantee that there won't be one inch east in terms of the expansion of NATO. That was February 1990. Gorbachev removes all the Soviet troops from Germany, or not all of them, nine-tenths of them, the next month. The Soviet Union collapses a year later. The final Russian troops leave East Germany, the eastern part of Germany, only in 1994, when Yeltsin is then the leader of Russia. And then, once the Russian troops are gone, the U.S., instead of, as it pledged, to the iron guarantee not to move east, it starts to move east dramatically. So then U.S. troops fill the vacuum. The Soviet troops have left. The Russian troops have left. They've been pledged that the U.S. won't occupy those countries, but the U.S. immediately begins occupying them. NATO is nothing other, Walter, than the U.S. occupation of Eastern and Central Europe using allies, so-called, or proxy or puppet governments 
in order to give a, a fig leaf or a camouflage to what essentially amounts to a U.S. military takeover of the former Russian area or Soviet area that constituted the, the division in the Cold War. And so what Putin was basically saying right up to the invasion of Ukraine, his, the Russian invasion was, okay, you've moved east, you broke your promises, you did it over and over and over again, but you're not going to do it to Ukraine. Ukraine had a coup in, in 2014. You, the U.S. government, inspired the coup. You supported the coup. Victoria Nuland was caught on tape talking about who the new government of Ukraine was going to be. Then once the coup happened, led by fascist forces, literally military pooch that overthrew the democratically elected government that was a neutral government in Ukraine. Once that happened... Once Ukraine had a pro-NATO government and Russia knew that Ukraine would be moved into NATO, that's when Russia changed its position on Crimea, one, and said, well, let's have the people in Crimea have a referendum about whether they want to be part of Russia or Ukraine. And of course, because most of them are Russians, they voted to be with Russia. And I don't think anybody disputes the outcome of that vote. And it was by a very large margin. And then Putin is able to say to the Russian military, give them some security. Well, the base, our biggest base, which is in Crimea, again, that was only transferred to Ukraine in 1954, administratively, that's going to retain, be retained as a Russian base. Because what would happen if it wasn't a Russian base any longer? It would become a NATO base. And so the U.S. and NATO would bring advanced conventional and nuclear weapons targeting Russia into Russia's own military base, its largest military base, that's when Putin drew this red line. And if you think about it, Walter, it wasn't even the Donbass at that time. The people in the Donbass who were struggling against this right-wing, anti-Russian, racist, semi-fascist government, and it wasn't exclusively fascist, but it certainly had fascist elements in it, they were being targeted by the new Ukrainian right-wing government. They were being shelled 14,000 people died in the Donbass. And during that entire time, Russia may have given military aid surreptitiously, but it didn't recognize the independent people's republics. It didn't move in. That only happened eight years later. So when you look at this entire history and think about all of the things that I just mentioned, you can't come to the conclusion that Russia, quote, wanted this war, that this was just an act of aggression on the part of the Russians. This is part of a longer historical process whereby Russia feels its very basic existential interests as a nation and for the Russian people or peoples is at threat. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I think one of the reasons why that history is so, so crucial for people to know is that it dispels this notion that NATO is a defensive alliance. That's what we're told over and over and over again. NATO is just about Article 5. Article 5 says that an attack on one member is an attack on all members. And so NATO is, is not something to be afraid of. It's actually something that keeps us all safe because all of the countries of the world are pledging to have each other's backs. That is completely false. That's completely a fiction. One of the key you know, pieces of evidence that proves that is what you just said about the sequence of the creation of NATO and the Warsaw Pact countries. You know, NATO is presented as, you know, a defensive, you know, maybe even a response to the creation of the Warsaw Pact. Well, the Warsaw Pact was created years after NATO was established and only after, as you pointed out, the Soviet Union's application to actually join NATO was rejected. The reason why NATO was set up was so that all of the big capitalist powers, all of the empires of the world would be on one team. They would be fighting on one side rather than fighting against each other. The people who set up essentially the, the U.S.-dominated world order in the aftermath of World War II looked at what happened in World War I and what was sort of beginning to take shape already towards the conclusion of World War II and said that if, if we keep fighting each other, we being the big empires, then socialist revolution will spread. World War I resulted in the creation of the Soviet Union. World War II ultimately led to the creation of a block of socialist countries. And so the United States wanted to make sure that that folly of inter-imperialist war, they didn't care about war on the oppressed peoples of the world of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, but that folly of inter-imperialist war wouldn't be repeated and instead the aggression would be directed at the socialist camp 
and the anti-colonial movements and governments. Russia also, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s, explored the possibility of joining NATO. I mean, they probably would have gone ahead and joined NATO if they were not prevented from doing so again by the United States. The rationale was a little bit different that time. The policymakers at the State Department thought that if NATO was expanded to include Russia, then Russia could actually become a second pole within NATO. They would loosen the United States' grip over Europe, and that if the European powers weren't tethered to U.S. security policy, really tethered to the Pentagon through the mechanism of NATO, then they could drift in the direction of ties with Russia, wanting good economic, political, diplomatic ties with Russia. That dynamic is also a factor in this current war. And, and I was wondering what your thoughts on that were, Brian, because you know the success of the proxy war effort against Russia and Ukraine is dependent to a very large extent on the willingness of these Western NATO powers to pour endless amounts of money and weapons into the conflict. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Well, it's interesting. You know, Sarkozy, who is the former head of state in France, is being pilloried right now. I, I don't have it right in front of me, Walter. I shared it with you earlier, but you might take a look at it. And I think it's the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're, they're really attacking Sarkozy because Sarkozy dares to say, look, maybe NATO expansion isn't such a great idea. Maybe we don't need NATO expansion. We know that the Russians are reacting as as though NATO expansion is an existential threat, and they have a case that can be made. So he's saying, he's sort of stepping back. He's not a radical. He's not an anti-imperialist. He's not an anti-war person. He's not part of the far right that, you know, demagogically speaks a little bit against the war. He's like a mainstream capitalist politician, but he's being pilloried right now in the media because he's making the case that this whole thing is sort of unnecessary. The whole war is unnecessary because NATO expansion is a bad idea. But I don't see any of the other leaders in Europe right now, the current heads of state doing that. In fact, I would say that what the U.S. wanted by provoking Russia, you know, refusing to negotiate with Russia when Russia said these are red lines, even when Putin amassed large numbers of troops in Belarus and on the eastern side of Ukraine in Russia prior to the invasion in February 2022. And, you know, the Russians were giving peace plans and demanding real negotiations. And Blinken and Jake Sullivan and all of them were saying, well, we think Russia is going to invade. But they didn't come back to the negotiating table because I think they felt, one, that if Russia invades, then Russia looks like the aggressor because it's invading the country. It's violating the UN charter. That means that NATO's justification is validated in Europe, where lots of Europeans before the Russian invasion were saying, why are we spending all of this money on war? Why does Obama and then Trump demand that we spend 2% of our budget, our national treasury on war every year in order to be in good status with NATO members? There was a lot of criticism against that. And the US, the Democrats and the Republicans, Obama and Trump were bludgeoning Europe and I think the U.S. felt, well, look, if Russia is the aggressor, if they finally move into Ukraine, then we'll snuff out that anti-NATO opposition in Europe. And I think that they succeeded with that. And then the second objective, I think there's three objectives overall. The second objective was to weaken Russia. I think they felt that if by evicting Russia from the world economy, imposing all of these sanctions, that Russia would be on its knees in a matter of months economically. That hasn't happened, but I think that was the expectation. And third, China in the Belt and Road, I mean, China is mainly concerned about China. It's one fifth of the human population. It was a poor country trying to overcome the legacy of semi-colonialism and underdevelopment and massive poverty. You know, China was trying to overcome that and they were using things like the Belt and Road Initiative to create a new international trade relationship that would be good for China rather than having China just under the dictates of the West. So China had Ukraine in Belt and Road and many other European countries wanted to be in Belt and Road. So I think the Americans felt, well, if we create this situation where Russia invades a part of Europe, invades Ukraine, 
and looks like the aggressor and is denounced by the European countries, then at least strong elements in China will say, well, why are we fastening our wagon to Russia instead of the dominant parts of the world economy? Like we'd rather be with Europe and the United States. So these three goals of the U.S. proxy war, and again, the third one being to divide Russia and China, to weaken Russia, to divide Russia and China, and to strengthen the U.S. position over Europe. Those were the three goals of the U.S. proxy war. So one, I think Europe is still very tightly under the control of the United States. Sarkozy is a, you know, a rare voice. Henry Kissinger you know, the war criminal from the Vietnam War days sounds a little bit like real politique, like let's negotiate, NATO expansion is bad. These are rare voices. But in terms of weakening Russia so far, no. And breaking up the Russian-Chinese alliance also so far, no. Yeah, Brian, I mean, just to go back to that article that you mentioned at the beginning of your comment, this was the, the headline from the New York Times a former French president gives a voice to obstinate Russian sympathies. A former French president gives a voice to obstinate Russian sympathies. The first paragraph reads, Nicolas Sarkozy, the former French president, was once known as Sarko the American for his love of free markets, freewheeling debate, and Elvis. Of late, however, he has appeared more like Sarko the Russian, even as President Vladimir V. Putin's ruthlessness appears more evident than ever. Yeah, I mean, they're so offended, upset, that any significant figure on the world stage would criticize their aims and point out what are just indisputable historical facts about NATO expansion, about Russia's core national security interests. But, you know, this actually represents the majority of global opinion, both in terms of the peoples of the world and also the governments of the world. I mean, the majority of countries are not giving voice to, you know, the U.S.-NATO position that this is purely wanton, evil aggression and that Russia has no legitimate interests whatsoever at stake in this situation. That's not the position of the world's governments. So, it has, in one sense, in terms of the rise of economic powerhouses, you know, a lot of people throw around the term like a multipolar world. The war in Ukraine is also very, very relevant to that tendency in global politics. The BRICS countries had a high profile summit in Johannesburg, you know, as we've been talking about on the socialist program. And well, we already read what Putin said about the war in Ukraine there, but also the fact that. Russia's economy survived, I think, as testament to its ability to maintain economic relations with the BRICS countries, with the countries, there's now about 40 of them that want to join BRICS and who are more broadly aligned with this geopolitical current that challenges the Western-dominated world order. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that element of this war is, too, in terms of the global balance of forces. Yeah, I think that it really has turned out quite differently than what the U.S. and NATO expected. The majority of the African countries did vote to condemn Russia in that UN resolution, but 19 voted either to abstain or voted no on the condemnation. So, you know, when Russia obviously, you know, violates the UN charter by bringing its military into another country, you know, you would think, okay, everybody's going to condemn it, but they, huge parts of the population did not. The majority of the people in the world live in countries where those countries' governments voted not to condemn. Most of them voted to abstain, and some voted no on the resolution condemning Russia. And I think big parts of Africa in particular think, well, look, Russia stood up to the United States. Russia wasn't going to be pushed around by the U.S. and NATO that the era of unipolar domination where the, the global South, so to speak, is just being pummeled and, and sanctioned and invaded and struck with drones or dominated by U.S. military bases. I mean, the U.S. US complains about Russian troops in, in Ukraine. Well, the U.S. has troops in 159 countries, 179,000 U.S. troops in 159 countries and 750 U.S. military installations. So for the people in the global South who are not getting their news from the New York Times or CNN or MSNBC, they don't think, oh, Russia is such a terrible aggressor and on the march and trying to dominate the world. No, they think the U.S. is the dominant hegemon. The U.S. has been dictating 
to the people of the global south, not just militarily, but economically with sanctions. You know, scores, maybe more than 100 countries have been sanctioned. And no country can do trade with Cuba or Venezuela or risk being sanctioned. In that sense, it's a global blockade. So I think the people of the world who are emerging, we've talked in our last shows about how the, the BRICS countries' GDP share is greater now than that of the G7. So the countries, the emerging economies of the global south, the formerly colonized and semi-colonized people of the world, their share of the world economy is growing. I mean, yes, the imperialists still have monopoly control over so-called intellectual property rights in the main, dominating you know, through patents and thus sort of monopolizing profits at the expense of the global south. But those economies are growing. They're really growing. And they don't want to go back to a world where the United States not only calls the shots, but dictates to every country, this is how you are going to act. This is how you're going to think. You know, countries want to be able to trade with whoever they want to trade with. Why can't Venezuela rent a boat, which it can't at the moment because it doesn't, can't get insurance from imperialist-dominated insurance companies, rent a boat to bring Cuba to its ally, Cuba, at a time when Cuba is being strangled by U.S. economic sanctions and coercive measures, which, by the way, were intensified greatly by Trump, but maintained by Biden, same policy. So the, the countries of the global South, who, again, they don't get their news from Rachel Maddow or, you know, Jake Tapper or the editor, the editorial group, the neocon editorial group of the Washington Post. They're getting their view of the world from the reality that they live in. And even though they don't favor war in Ukraine, they want to be in a world that isn't strictly under the domination, under the thumb of U.S. imperialism. Now, I want to go, Walter, to another topic, which is because here we're talking about geostrategic issues, how the world is changing. You know, some call it the new multipolar world. It's definitely a new era of global politics since Russia basically you know, decided it had had enough with Western domination and decided to move. And the Russians knew full well that the consequences would be that they would be evicted or attempted to be evicted from the world economy. They knew that and they did it anyway. So that's on the geostrategic level. But I, I want to talk about what's going on in the United States. And I really want to speak to people on this who consider themselves liberal or progressive. People who are, say, against Donald Trump and his reactionary, racist, misogynist policies. I want to speak to that part of the population that may have considered themselves historically kind of liberal. You know, when I was a teenager and we were organizing against the war in Vietnam and I was a socialist and a radical, we were marching in the streets with people who were not radicals who considered themselves liberals. So the liberals were against the war in Vietnam. The liberals were for peace with the Soviet Union, for better relations with the Soviet Union. The liberals were against the Pentagon carrying out an arms race with the Soviet Union, against the growing use or deployment or building of nuclear weapons. So radical leftists and liberals were kind of marching down the same street, but carrying different banners, different slogans. That's no longer the case today. You know, as a consequence of the Democratic Party selling liberals this bill of goods that Donald Trump, who they hated, became president of the United States because of Russian interference, because of the Kremlin, or because of the Internet Research Agency, something that was completely not true. That's not why Trump became president in 2016. But liberals thought it was. They agreed with it. So who was against Trump? Well, the FBI was investigating him. The military-industrial complex establishment was saying Trump is trying to break up NATO. He's talking badly about NATO allies. He doesn't care about NATO. He's ruining the architecture of the U.S. strategic military relationships around the world. He wanted a peace deal with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. So because Trump was doing those things and because he was being targeted, the liberals— moved into the camp of actually supporting the military-industrial complex as if it was something progressive. And so 
the people who are liberals or progressive on, say, abortion rights or gay rights or, you know, social issues are now almost all 100% for the war in Ukraine. So again, when I was a young person and we were liberals and radicals marching together, the difference between us, the difference was the radicals said, look, the real reason the U.S. is at war with the, in Vietnam and the reason it's got military bases everywhere and the reason it's got this nonstop war against the Soviet Union is because it's a global system of imperialism and capitalism where the liberals were saying, no, these are mistaken foreign policies. We don't need a new system. We just need better politicians, better leaders, better thinkers. So that was the difference between radical socialists and liberals. But today, the liberals are really 100%, you know, hook, line, and sinker fell for the line of the military-industrial complex. And because Biden is not Trump and Biden ran against Trump and beat Trump, but Biden is like a right-wing militarist himself, they think that Biden is somehow the humane part of politics. This is a profound change in American politics, that the liberals are part of the war drive. And I wanted to point out, and we talked about this, Walter, you and I were at a, at a school for socialism recently where we were talking about how do you talk to people who consider themselves progressive or liberal, but are 100% for the Ukraine war? Because they think if you support, unless you support the US war drive, you don't care about Ukrainians, right? That's the main thing. Russia, evil, monstrous, aggressors, they're killing Ukrainians, we have to defend Ukrainians. And so we have to support the war effort in sending these billions and billions and billions of more weapons to Ukraine. Well, here's the New York Times, everybody, a major article highlighting the fact that there's a half a million Ukrainians and Russians who are either dead or wounded in the last 18 months. And, you know, the consequence, we would think the consequence would be like, get back to the negotiating table, have a peace deal, you know, settle this and this, like the killing fields in Ukraine. But listen to this article, I wanna read it. Big headline about how many people, how many Ukrainians are dying. Here, in recent weeks, I want people to really listen to these words carefully. In recent weeks, Ukraine has shifted its battlefield tactics. This is in the middle of the counteroffensive. Returning to its old ways of wearing down Russian forces with artillery and long range missiles instead of plunging into minefields under fire. American officials are worried that Ukraine's adjustments will race through precious ammunition supplies, which could benefit President Vladimir Putin of Russia and disadvantage Ukraine in a war of attrition. But Ukrainian commanders decided to pivot, reducing casualties and preserving their frontline fighting forces. So the Americans are worried that the Ukrainian military is gonna waste precious supplies and military equipment instead of having precious human beings run into these minefields. That's their complaint. And then get this, and this is the final, this is the kicker. American officials say, this is a quote, American officials say they fear that Ukraine has become casualty averse. You got that? Ukrainians are becoming casualty averse. One reason it has been cautious about pressing ahead with the counteroffensive. Almost any big push against dug in Russian defenders protected by minefields would result in huge numbers of losses. So to my liberal friends, if you think that you're supporting and helping Ukrainians by supporting the US war effort, think about what the US war makers, those who are conducting this proxy war, actually think about Ukrainians. They're afraid that Ukrainians don't wanna keep dying in record numbers. They're afraid that Ukrainians wanna use precious military equipment to save the lives of their sons and daughters. You know, when the US fought the war in Vietnam, it told US soldiers shoot first and you know, don't take any chances because if you see a boy on a bicycle who's 10 years old riding towards you with a backpack, he might be carrying a bomb because the Vietnamese were waging a people's war and children were part of it. So shoot that child, don't take a chance. And why? 
because every additional American military casualty was a political liability in the United States because the American people were casualty averse. The American people didn't want their sons and some of their daughters to go thousands of miles away to kill and be killed in the jungles of Vietnam. They were casualty averse. And as the death rate went up and up and up, by 1968, the majority of the people of the United States turned against the war. Same thing that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like the U.S. military officials said, the commanders, well, they all look the same. So you can't tell who's an enemy and who's a friend. So shoot first and ask questions later or don't ask questions at all. So this is what we were talking about because we have to talk to our, quote, liberal friends and tell them, read that article. If you think you're helping Ukrainians by prolonging the war, by sending more and more weapons, precious ammunition and precious supplies, you're not. You're helping and contributing to the death of Ukrainians in an unnecessary war. This war could have never been started if the U.S. had gone to the negotiating table. And it could end, as we could see from Putin's statements at BRICS, if the U.S. comes and recognizes that Russia basically controls Donbass and Crimea, this killing field in Ukraine could, could come to an end. So if you care about Ukrainians, don't send billions more weapons. Demand that the government that speaks in your name be a real liberal, like the old-style liberal, demand that that government actually enter into peace negotiations. This is such a profound change in American politics that the liberals and the people who are voting for the Democrats and think they're against the right wing have actually, in large measure, been taken in tow by the military-industrial complex. Having said that, I would say the majority of working-class people in America, poor people in America, whether they're voting Democrat or Republican, the masses of people, they don't want this war. They don't understand why they're sending their tax money for more and more weapons in the war. They don't get it. They want it to end. But there hasn't been a strong enough anti-war movement yet, and we're trying to create that kind of anti-war movement with this show, with the Answer Coalition, with other anti-war coalitions. That's what we need to do, because this carnage has to come to an end. Walter, again, when you think about it, I'm going to get your last comment, and then I'm going to make my final comment. When you think about the cynicism of the U.S. presentation here, it's mind-blowing, and yet it's taken as conventional wisdom that what the U.S. government is saying about Russia and about the war, it's conventional wisdom because it's repeated over and over and over again by the capitalist mainstream media. It's a drumbeat. And so many even, not just liberal, but some left groups are constantly repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. You've got to condemn Russia. Well, you don't have to support the Russian invasion of Ukraine to know that the U.S. government is largely responsible for having created this crisis and did everything in its power to not have a peace settlement prior to the Russian invasion and is doing everything in its power now, even as the counteroffensive makes so little progress and as Ukrainians die in record numbers, it does everything in its power not to seek peace, but to continue the long war. Again, the, the level of cynicism is almost unmatched. It's an unbelievably cruel policy and position that the United States government has adopted. To them, Ukrainians are nothing more than pawns. Their lives don't matter at all. If 10,000 Ukrainians die, fine. If 100,000 Ukrainians die, fine. It's of no consequence to them because what this war is all about is them achieving their geopolitical goals, those three goals that you, you laid out, Brian. And they know that the political costs, if those were U.S. troops or British or French troops doing the fighting and dying and suffering life-changing wounds, then that would be, it would be too great. It would be politically untenable for U.S. or French or British society to handle that. So they're going to get Ukrainians to do that fighting for them. That's the basic logic of a proxy war. That's also why they prefer to wage drone warfare all around the world, murdering people from thousands of miles away, controlling autonomous vehicles that prowl the skies. I mean, these sort of new generation of imperialist war making really centers around this question, how do we avoid large-scale casualties of our own troops and make sure that all of the killing and dying is done by other people. 
tremendously cruel. And as you pointed out, it's compounded by the fact that the U.S. government has spent over $100 billion so far on this war. The Biden administration is now requesting $24 billion of additional funding of quote unquote supplemental funding for the Ukraine war. This is madness. This is terrible, especially when you consider all of the suffering, all of the crises that working people are going through in this country and around the world. It's absolutely obscene that it's all being used to keep this war going when it could end with a peace settlement. And for those people who say, well, we can't reward Russia by allowing the Donbass to become part of Russia, or we can't reward Russia by allowing Crimea to become part of Russia. Crimea became part of Russia, Walter, in 1954, again, when Ukraine and Russia were one country called the Soviet Union. That was 1954. The United States invaded Hawaii and Hawaii became a state, part of the United States, in 1959, five years after Crimea went to Ukraine as an administrative transfer. I mean, look at the southwest part of the United States, Texas and Colorado and Utah and Arizona and California. They were part of Mexico. You know, the United States invaded Cuba in 1998. The United States is still in Cuba, occupies Cuba at Guantanamo, the only part of Cuba where torture takes place. So for the people in the United States to say, oh, we can't reward Russian aggression by allowing a peace deal that allows Russia to retain control over the Donbass. Well, just think about the history of the United States, which is based on invading other countries, but in the mainland and in the states, the annexation of different territories. It doesn't disturb anyone. Nobody even thinks about this. No one even puts this into a historical perspective. If Donbass and Crimea are part of Russia and the war ends, that is not going to be some terrible nightmare for the world. What is a nightmare for the world, and certainly a nightmare for the people in Ukraine and for Russians who are dying needlessly, is the prolongation of this war. And what's a real threat and danger and a nightmare that we can foresee is if the United States doctrine of major powered conflict, which was adopted as a priority by the Pentagon five years ago in 2018, if that policy is not reversed, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The U.S. is going to war against Russia. It's getting ready to go to war against China over Taiwan. The Chinese have actually, even though they probably were not thrilled at all about the Russian military action in Ukraine, they're worried that if the U.S. succeeds in defeating Russia in Ukraine, that China will be next. And they know that. They're preparing for that. They're preparing for war. So the real nightmare is not for Donbass and Crimea to become part of Russia. The real nightmare is for the war to continue. And the real, even biggest nightmare is for U.S. military aspirations and strategies to go unchecked. So here in the socialist program, for those of us who are also part of the Answer Coalition, the Anti-War Coalition, and other peace groups, we recognize that the big job right now is to go against the mainstream, the dominant narrative of the capitalist bourgeois-owned media, which is an echo chamber for the military-industrial complex and for imperialism, and tell the truth about the Ukraine war, that the real issue for the United States government right now is not that the war is going on too long, but that the Ukrainian people are becoming casualty averse. You can't get more criminal in your thinking than that. We have to work together to end the war, to stand together, to tell the truth about the war. And that's what we're gonna do. Walter Smolarek, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.